Ready graphics? Ready theme? I knew that I wasn't as beautiful and tall and photogenic as like my sister was and a lot of wonderful, beautiful, 5'10", naturally beautiful women. I just said, well, what am I going to do? Well, I had a sense of humor from day one. I learned to laugh at adversities. Hi, this is Lauren Milberger. And I'm Jesse Mullins. And we are back. We waited a bit to post this amazing interview that we have with Faith Ford because of what's going on in the world right now. We just felt that it was a good idea for us to take a pause. Yes, we wanted to make sure that we were not taking space that was better served for those who need to be amplified right now. But this is such a wonderful interview that we wanted to make sure that we got to share it with you. This was also in conversation with Faith. Part of that, as feminists raised by people like Murphy, we want to make sure that we are using our voices to advocate for and amplify voices um, that may be marginalized. So uh, normally in this intro, we would probably say something like, oh, you know, come check us out at our Patreon. We have extra things. You can support us there. But instead today, what we want to do is amplify some organizations um, that could really use uh, your donation if you have that that money in this time. So the one that I want to amplify today is BEAM. It's the Black Emotional and Mental Health Collective. Uh, BEAM is a training, movement-building, and grant-making organization. They are dedicated to the healing, wellness, and liberation of Black and marginalized communities. Their vision is a world in which there are no barriers to Black healing. Uh, we will link their website in our notes. Uh, Lauren, who are you at amplifying today? I chose... BTFA Collective, which is Black Trans Femmes in the Arts. It is a sponsor project of the Arts Business Collaborative, which is improving the quality of life for people of color through arts and STEM. So the mission of BTFA is to connect the community of Black trans women and non-binary femmes in the arts to build power among ourselves. And I really felt that this is important because obviously it is a hard time for people in the arts because most of our business is on hold. Not to mention that the more trans women of color are able to tell their stories, the more mainstream and widespread it can be for other people who maybe have never met anyone who was trans before. There are so many who are farther down the rungs that we need to amplify. Even as women, we still are farther up a rung than a woman of color, a black woman, Absolutely. Woman, an Asian woman. And it's really, and especially trans women who are greatly at risk right now. So I really appreciate you bringing that organization. Uh, something else we wanted to amplify is that uh, Faith also wanted to amplify an organization. So Lauren, which organization did Faith want to amplify today? There's so many deserving charities out there, but something that is very close to Faith's heart, as well as Jesse and myself, is the GoFundMe for Breonna Taylor. Many of you are familiar, we hope, with the tragic and needless death of Breonna Taylor. And what a lot of people aren't aware of is that her family is in need of money to keep this legal fight going. Any amount is more than welcome, and we will link that GoFundMe in our show notes. What's also great about the GoFundMe is that there are many calls to action to keep fighting for justice for Brianna if you don't have the money to give. So all that said, uh, this is something that we want to, as uh, white identifying women in this industry, it's very important to us to um, continue to grow as intersectional uh, feminists and advocates. So this is something that we are probably going to start doing every episode, is finding a call to action or a recommendation um, that we could offer to those listening. Sometimes it's we can get really bogged down in all the different options. So we just want to give you a little bit of what we have found and experienced as far as ideas. And one of those things is also that, hey, we're in a pandemic. Not everyone is financially at a place where they can give. So we also want to recommend that there are options in uh, 
in contributing to our country that don't necessarily involve money. So Lauren and I uh, are both uh, big fans of voting. You may have heard of that from us for once or twice or three times. And, and so one of the things that we have both been involved in is the Adopt-A-State program through Vote Save America. Lauren, what, what is that like? It's an initiative by Vote Save America to get the vote out in battleground states, and you can choose one of the battleground states to adopt. Jesse, what state have you adopted? I adopted Wisconsin. Being an original Minnesotan and now living in Illinois, I felt like my neighbor really needed a, a kick in the butt. How about you? I picked Pennsylvania. Mm, that's a battleground. And all that said, we want to get to why we're really here today. Yes! Which is to listen to the amazing Faith Ford. We had a wonderful conversation with her. It left me feeling really positive as far as what we can do as people, who we are, and how much uh, love we can hold for each other. I agree. It was really inspirational and she was lovely to talk to. And you'll notice that it starts very different from our usual interviews because we just started chatting. It just was very organic, and it really just sort of went right into the interview. Mm -hmm. It was very fun. I can't wait to talk to her again. And just as a reminder, we did record this in February before the pandemic, and we'll see you for part two. So this is so fun. It's been a long time coming. When's the first time you, you approached me about doing this? What is it, four years now? Three years? Three years, I think. I think three. Yeah, almost three, because it was before the revival. You were one of our first, you know, uh, you and Corby were one of our first real sort of, you know, supporters. Who, by the way, I missed her greatly in the revival. Yeah, she says hello, by the way, because I, I had I to ask her for something and let her know I needed it for you. And she, she said to say hi. <laughs> she had such an amazing spirit. I mean, you know, Diane used to back in the day, you know, she would say, you know, Corby really is like, because she was like our encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ours yeah. too. Yes, <laughs> she's still she's still the encyclopedia. <laughs> Yeah, she remembered things that most people didn't remember. And uh, I think, quite frankly, she probably would have worked a lot of things out had she come back this time because she was one of those, no, but Corky was always like the, you know, mm -hmm. now I remember, like yeah. it became part of who I was as a human being. So that when, you know, one of the things when I met with Diane first is like, how many times is Corky going to have been married now? And what are you going <laughs> to yeah. do with that thing? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, she's very much like the fairy godmother of the podcast. She has been a rock for us and such a supporter. And as when we first started, vouched for us to a lot of yeah. the leaders to chat with us. And she's she's so wonderful. If if Diane was the camp counselor, she was like the den mother. Ah! Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, seriously. You know, there's a there's an important part that each of those roles plays. But she definitely was someone that I always felt like was our, she was literally the Bible. She was like the mm -hmm. Murphy Brown Bible, but went into Corby's brain, never left, you know, and she really kept us on track. I mean, you have to have that on soap operas, you know, yeah. as series goes on for 10 years, you know, the fans that are true fans don't ever forget anything, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and a lot of my feedback about the show was like, well, what about Corky and Miles? What, what about Corky and Miles? And mm -hmm. I was like, ask Diane. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know. I was. It was just fine. I just figured it's like all these ideas. This is what I had to do with my brain. All these ideas that I felt like Corky might have or done or anything. Corky has buried them mm. in a little vault inside, locked it up, and thrown away the key. Mm -hmm. That's way she functions in life so that was that was that sort of that retro nouveau way that Corky was in the revival I thought 
Well, I always wanted Corky to grow. And I think she did grow on after the show was on because I always considered her as a human being, not just mm -hmm. a character on the show. And I said, I figured she had many lives after and she just kept getting hit, you know, because one of the things I told Diane when I, when I came onto this role, I said, look, she could be hated by many women because she's can be perceived as an idiot who doesn't deserve to be in that place mm -hmm. just because she looks good. And I said, I don't want those women to hate Corky. I want them to learn, to feel like I wanted Murphy. I wanted to give Murphy a chance to accept her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, we, we talk yeah. about a lot that of all the characters on the show, she's had the largest arc. She's changed the most. Yes. I, I, when we started this, I, found myself becoming the great Corky defender. <laughs> I was like, no, but look at this. If we looked at her a different, if we just stepped back from like our own preconceived, especially kind of what we call the girl on girl crime, this idea of that there's only so much room at the table, like she has a spot there. And actually she, she's making a lot of sense. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I don't know one young woman who's tried to step into the world with women who are much more experienced they are mm -hmm. that don't feel like Corky has felt. And there's a part of them that says, if I really think about how much I don't belong here, I'm not going to make it. Yeah. So I just, I just have to approach this. Like I do know this. I don't know that, but I'm going to learn it. But right now I know this and this mm -hmm. is what I'm going to do. So, I mean, I, I really appreciate you sending me those episodes because whoa, what a trip down memory lane. Aww. So much that you know how you remember, but you forget. Yeah. And it was really like looking at an old yearbook, you know, <laughs> you know, with, with moving pictures in a way. I mean. Now, did you ever watch them as they went along or did you stop? Are you someone who likes to watch your own work or was this the first time you were seeing them? I don't really spend a lot of time watching myself. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I have a tendency. It's not good. It's not good if you're a. It, I'm a. I'm a Virgo in every sense of the word. I am a detail-oriented person. Sometimes I just have to. I've gotten to where now, and with my age, I literally say, when they say, "Are you good, Faith?" When I'm working, I go, "If you're good, I'm good," because, quite frankly, there's always room for growth. Yeah, and there's always room for improvement. Um, I went on to produce, you know, with my husband Campion, uh, quite a few things. And I'm very good with other actors, knowing when they've got their best. Mm -hmm. You know, I just innately, I, I see it. But with my own self, I don't, I just always feel like, you know, sometimes I feel like I have those moments. But I will always be the one who says, if the other actor has the better moment, I will go for that in your master, you know, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Because especially if they're carrying the story, I think it's really important. I, I noticed like on the revival, I, I was supporting, you know, I'm like quirky with the joke again. And that was the way I started. And sometimes my big old long, long A jokes that would take a page of learning and work and rhythm and timing would not make it. And I would go, hmm, but because I've produced before, I know why. When you don't carry the story yeah. sometimes, and that's brave in comedy for Diane to do that. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of comedy producers will not, they will go for a joke nowadays, a lot. 
And I'm always like, mm, you know, you got to stick with the story. And she did it very masterfully. One of my instructors refers to that. Uh, he works in LA a lot. Uh, his name is Rob Adler. And he uh, refers to it as a Horatio moment of uh he had a theater company that did a version of hamlet where they kind of just drew straws for who was going to be what and he's like I'll, I'll be horatio it's fine i don't need to be hamlet this time but that moment of thinking about the the larger picture and what the project needs and just putting the love into what matters right now your role in the story your role in the production your role in the ensemble and cohort yeah if you've ever done theater mm-hmm. or been around people who've done theater or been around anybody or been involved with writing a script or putting things together you know that it is take so many people to put that together. So Mm -hmm. it's about magic moments and it's about relationships with people. And that's what it's all about. It's not about these fantastic performances or these hilarious jokes or whatever, even though they might play really well live with an audience, it doesn't mean that that's what you can actually keep, you know, in the end. Although I will say my younger days of quirky, um, they kept them a lot because Murphy had to bear the Murphy and miles. I think bear most of the story. We called it laying the cable. Miles certainly laid the cable a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Just everything he said, set up the show mostly yeah. in those earlier days, he would come in with our assignments and da, 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 And that was always what the show is about. Um, but I look back on it and I just think, wow, it's it's pretty amazing because everything that they said when Barnett Kelman directed the show and Diane was there at the helm, they really wanted to keep it just constantly moving with people, you know, coming in. It gave you this, it made the news world seem somewhat, uh, the people were just more, they were normal with normal lives. And we hadn't seen that at all. Now it's like reality television all the time with news. I mean, you're mm-hmm. really seeing how people really think about everything right there in front of you on the air. So it's not as groundbreaking. But, you know, back in the day, news people were right here and they were the heads or they were here out on the field with their field jackets on and they were reporting. But you never, ever, 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 ever saw what they thought behind the scenes. Yeah. You know, that was all very much protected. But uh, so that's why sometimes it's like people don't realize how, you know, they did marry Tyler Moore, certainly, but she was not an on-air person. You know, it was more about her life. They didn't really go into Ted Baxter's story and who he really was, you know, or anything like that. So I think that it was groundbreaking in that sense, you know. Now, did you actually, I know Candace went to some newsrooms. Did you do some research and meet some real-life reporters before the show? Purposefully, no. (laughs) I wanted her to be the one that was worried about how she would look yeah, on mm-hmm. two people. And I didn't, I think she caught her. Look, here's the reality. When you win Miss America by default <laughs> and your talent was coordinating closets, <laughs> really? Uh, she didn't go into Miss America thinking I'm going to be Miss America. She went into Miss America thinking, all right, you know, it's kind of like me. I mean, I ended up in New York because my mama had sent me a Miss Teen Magazine model search. She had submitted me for a finalist to be on the cover of Teen Magazine when I was 16. And she made me, she said, come on, let's, let's go outside. I think she was just scared to death that my, my lifetime ambition was going to be a housewife. You know, (laughs) I think she was just like, I don't think so. Uh, But I really just was 
you know, home economics and I was cheerleader and I was this and then I was dance line and I did all the things my sister told me to do and then I did acting. But I think when she entered me in that was because I always wanted to sew and I always created my own clothes for events and my Mm -hmm. mother would make them and I would make them with her. I used that with Corky, by the way. I, in all my, and, and I still to this day, wardrobe is a very important part of my characters that I play. And, uh, so therefore, like I, I found myself, my mom was taking pictures of me. She submitted it. I it became a finalist, which sort of go, Hmm. Then she got me into, uh, Jane, uh, John Marvel powers to learn how it's basically a finishing school to learn how to sit, stand and everything. Well, they took me to New York for the first time for a modeling convention. And I knew that I wasn't as beautiful and tall and photogenic as like my sister was and a lot of wonderful, beautiful, 5'10", naturally beautiful women. I just said, well, what am I going to do? Well, I had a sense of humor from day one, you know, because Mm -hmm. I learned to laugh at adversity. So I was skinny, not easy. I wasn't, I was awkward. I was a geek. And and I just learned, and then I started to kind of get, figure out how to feather my hair and all these things happen. I'm leading back to Corky. So I could take pieces from my own life as I would, then I thought I'm going to try to be more like my sister. You know, I'm going to try to be, you know, she's smart. I'm going to try to get good grades. She's this, I'm going to try to, so she was my example, but I had to study hard to keep myself applied when it came to the books, because I was more of a visual artist, you know, I'd rather be outside gardening, making pretty garden beds. I'd rather be sewing. I'd rather be drawing and painting. I was always visual. And then I helped mom design outfits. And so my mom said, listen, you're going to go and you're going to be that you're going to learn how to do all of these things. But I, you know, she always thought I could model. And she said, maybe it'll get you to New York. Maybe you'll be able to make money and then maybe then you can become a fashion designer, merchandiser, you know? And I said, okay. But all this time, my sister had me acting in, in high school. And I said, but that's not really what I'm going to do for a living. But she had me doing things like Thurber Carnival and, you know, effective gamma rays and man and moon miracle. Oh, I did that show, (laughs) you know? And I, I, as a freshman in high school, I was doing Sisera, uh, you know, for prose. I was prose, poetry, duet acting, and mm-hmm. humorous interp and dramatic interp. And I was like placing in all of these categories. But I guess it was because my whole life I was play acting. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would mimic people. I, but not making fun of them. I could just recreate them when I would come home because I was more of a listener and shy and observer. So I think why I ended up falling into this was because if it was always kind of through the back door and observing. And I used that with Corky because I feel like Corky was a backdoor observer mm-hmm. of life. And she admired Murphy day one. She admired mm-hmm. her. Never thought she'd ever, ever, ever get the chance to be in her shoes, nor did she even really want to be. That was not her goal. But if you put her in that place, she learned to become 
what people thought she should be. Mm. Just don't ask her too many of the tough questions, the <laughs> tough questions, because she might have to go ask somebody over here. What's how do you pronounce that word? Shiite in the pilot. That would have been so embarrassing, you know. I think that's one of Corky's great strengths, honestly, is the I mean, first and foremost, we've we've talked about with the first season that there's this great arc, starting with the pilot, but especially Devil with a Blue Dress to Morning Show, and this great, you know, kind of switching of Corky and Murphy and the respect that grows. But something I love so much about Corky that I often try to put into my own life is you don't always have to fake it till you make it. Sometimes you can just say, I don't know what that means and not let it diminish you. And that's something I yeah. love about her. Yeah, well, I use that in my, I mean, look, I use my own life a lot. I personally embarrass myself so, so much because, you know, my sister was born to be a, an attorney, a doctor, whatever she wanted to be, she could have been that. She was an amazing public speaker. You know, she was Miss Louisiana National Teenager. Um, and it was pretty much seemed effortless to her, but she always had her head in a book. That was her life. I mean, she was couldn't learn enough. You know, you couldn't teach her enough. She came out that way. Whereas I was always observing. I was just always looking. I mean, I, my, I would sit in the mall and my dad and I would watch people. It wasn't until later on I would hear interviews with actors like myself that were just as fascinated with people as I am, you know? Um, I, tell, I, I think yesterday I was talking to you about mm -hmm. this woman that came up to me, and this happens to me sometimes, Lauren. <laughs> I live in a very small town, and she came up to me, and I never know if anybody's going to say, you know, sometimes they think that they've gone to school with me or, you know, mm -hmm. Evidently, I went. I was in high school for twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> That's how many people went to school with me, and I'm like, oh, really? What year did they graduate? Oh, uh, I think it was around seventy-one or seventy something like that. But they they knew you. They remembered you from school. I <laughs> I wasn't there then, you know. But I met this this woman yesterday. We you know we were in my dad's hometown and stuff, and uh, we drove there and. She said to me, I just wanted to come up to you. My, my son saw you in Pacifier, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, well, that's so sweet. Well, I ended up finding out she was just diagnosed with, you know, stage four colon cancer. And I was just, well, that's why I was supposed to come here today, you know. And uh, that's getting back to Corky. I have a feeling that... She was from a small town. She was actually from the area that I was at yesterday, around Nebo, Louisiana. I made her from there just because it was close to my heart. And no matter how famous Corky became, people would come up to her like, "Oh, well, you're just one of us. You're just a, you're just home girl, you know." And uh, that's what I always loved about playing her and being her was that the closeness that she felt to my heart, you know. Yeah. Um. That's something also rewatching the show as adults, because, you know, we sort of watching it as, as children is a seeing quirky in a completely different light. And something that I, I really love that I'm seeing now, but also that I think I also saw in the revival is that there can be different types of women. You know, uh, Murphy has her, her many of her faults, uh, but, you know, she's the lead character and she's supposed to be the epitome and she looks down at Quirky, but she doesn't, she shouldn't look down at Quirky. There, There's enough space for both of these women in life, 
not just one type of woman. And I, I really appreciate that more than I did when I was 12, mm -hmm. for sure. Right. Because Murphy was, if you, I always, my sister and I laugh at this so hard because I watch a lot of really old shows, <laughs> but I also watch things that you wouldn't even imagine that I watch. I watch Vikings, but <laughs> I love that show. <laughs> but I I watch it because in my in my like I look at Candace like a Viking uh, mm -hmm. as well as Murphy <laughs> and she would have definitely been a shield mating yes uh, back in the day and my sister as well um, I on the other hand <laughs> might have been a slave I'm not really sure <laughs> because I do cook and I love to take care of people and. I like to live a very simple um, life mm -hmm. and I'm very comfortable with that. Uh, however, I would be one of those slaves that would find herself at the end that would be made queen somehow because, you know, she, because back in the day, the husbands would fall in love with the slaves, the husbands of the queen, you know, and there was all this stuff happening. It's like, oh, yeah, that would have probably been me. And I wouldn't have wanted to be there and I wouldn't have even known why I was there, you know. So I have always been one of these people who I can be a really good friend to very strong women and build them up. And maybe that was because that's the way my sister is because, you know, can't, you know, being on top can be very, very lonely. You know, you don't really know who your real friends are really. Cause there's always somebody out there that's either trying to get you a job or, you know, challenge you. And for no reason, you're just there because you really are good at what you do, you know, and it's really that simple. And, uh, I've always understood that, you know, uh, always and admired it. And, you know, with that strength can come a lot of, Maybe like with Murphy's character, she could get very angry, <laughs> do very, what it seemed to be mean things. But I think, no, 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 Corky, Corky understands that. Mm -hmm. And she's hoping that maybe one day she can express her anger that freely and openly when it needs to happen, you know, because sometimes mm -hmm. it needs to happen. You need to tell somebody, you know, uh, and I think that if we had kept on going, you would have seen that happen with Corky. You know, you would have had that moment where, wait a minute, she really, she really did learn, you know, like maybe she would have to come to Murphy's aid, you know, at some point and really see that happen. And I think Diane probably mm -hmm. would have gone there mm -hmm. had we had time, because I think that the main thing is stereotypes, as much as you like to see them on the surface, that they exist, they really don't, you know, uh, they really it just depends on the writers and how much they want to delve beneath them, you know? So. Well, something this makes me think of is similarly to Lauren saying, you know, there are different types of women. I think in that same vein, something that pops up a lot for the characters in the show is resilience. They all, they all have different forms of resilience and they all, I mean, poor Miles just keeps going. Uh, you know, <laughs> we just, we stay the course, but it, it makes me think of something that you touched on yesterday that I wanted to talk about here, which was, you you looking back at these episodes like a yearbook and you remembering what you as a person were going through while you were shooting this that nobody knew about. Yeah, I had Graves disease. 
right away. I was diagnosed. I went into the doctor's office. I was finishing a season. I remember I finished the, I think it was the second season that it came on. And, uh, I kept feeling like I had sand in my eyes and I would constantly like blink my eyes and, and I was not real strong and I just started losing weight, but I was eating for two people, like grown men, you know? And, uh, it was all very whirlwind for me. And, uh, I was nominated after the first season, which was crazy. I was not expecting it, but very grateful, but really hoping I wouldn't win because I really felt like not hoping like, Oh, I hope I don't win. Cause it's more like the people in my category. If you guys went back and looked, you would, it was great. It's unbelievable to even, I mean, you know how people say, Oh, it's just an honor to be nominated with all these people. It was really an honor. Yeah. No, seriously. It was Estelle Getty and Rhea Perlman and Lori Metcalf and, uh, gosh, Julia Louis Dreyfus was not me. I mean, that was it. You know, just some newcomers, some fellow newcomers. Yeah. <laughs> and seriously. So, but when the Graves disease happened, it, it really just took me for a loop. And I, uh, so I started to map, like when I would look back, that's why I didn't watch a lot. Because mm-hmm. I could see all those things. Nobody else could notice it. Mm. But I could map. I could tell either by my hairstyle or the size I was or whatever, what I was kind of going through. And it was always opposite of what I was playing, you know. And sometimes I, look, I was like, oh, poor Faithy. Poor little old Faithy. You know, in, in, a, in a great, in a, in a, in a look. I tell my sis, you know, I was born with a crooked leg. And I was. I was I came out with adversity. And I, I, I you know, one day I won't write a book, but one day there will be uh, an opportunity for someone to sit down and write down like notes, not because it's magnificent, just because it's just there are many stories like mine that people just they just kind of go through stuff and you, you don't let it, you know, I've got a, you know, you know, you're either a cancer survivor or it kills you, you know? Mm-hmm. And I look at it like this. It, prope- it, it propelled me forward. Every time you have something that happens in your life, it, you know, I think because I was born with a crooked leg, I then went in a body cast, then I went into, you know, for my leg my parents had to do this to me, (laughs) you know, I was colicky. Then I got a brace put on between my, you know, that kept my feet together. Then I went to corrective boots. And then finally, I was able to walk. And I crawled first. And, but I couldn't wait to walk. And I went from walking to climbing immediately. And my mom would find me on tops of the table, walking around the edge of the table, climbing the drapes. I mean, it was insane. <laughs> so maybe that spirit on a subconscious level makes you look at things like, I remember this year, this when we finished that season of Murphy, Candace looked at me and she said, Faithy, you know, getting older is not for, you know, wimps. You, you, spend your, you spend your life in the doctor's office all the time. And I, she said, you'll see. And I said, wait, 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 back up. I said, I'll see. I said, honey, I was, I've been in doctor's offices my whole life. And mm-hmm. stuff. I, she goes, oh yeah, that's right. You did have that thing, didn't you? I'm like, 
yes. And she, we describe it where we would go on ski trips together. And I remember I was in the throes of it, you know, and I didn't know what it was, but I was determined to learn how to ski. And Candace was like, oh, on the ski slope. I mean, because she went to, she went to uh, finishing, well, boarding school. She didn't go to finishing school. She was already finished. <laughs> she, 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 she learned how to do everything because her parents, you know, she was, she was Hollywood royalty. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly, but not because she wanted to, because it was, it was required of her, but then mm-hmm. she was in boarding school and that's how she learned to be such a beautiful skier. And I was like, Oh, well, there you go. I've got to learn to ski now. I wasn't planning on it, but now I got to do it. And, uh, I just remember trying to ski and doing moguls. And everything, I was like, oh, my God, this is so hard. And going to mobile mo- classes, I was like, but remember, Faith, you were born with a crooked leg. <laughs> you know, So I just figured, <laughs> I always turn it into comedy. But I always figured that, you know, in, in, in life, I, I looked at that as I was sitting there and Candace said, I remember when you were, you were skiing. This is what I wanted, the point I was making. She said, I remember when we were skiing and she said, do you remember you were all shaky and you couldn't stand up on your legs very much on your skis because you were so shaky? And I said, yeah, that was, that was because I didn't know it then. But one of the things that Graves disease does is it starts to attack your major muscles and it weakens them. So like your quadricep mm-hmm. muscles, which are your main muscles you use when you're skiing and your shoulders, like, you know, you, you don't, you're not even able to hold up your arms and stuff. And, uh, but I didn't know what was going on, but I just remembered, I have to finish the season of Murphy Brown before I go to the doctor mm. because I could have cancer and then I won't be able to do comedy. I mean, it's, it's stupid how you think, but so that's why when that woman stopped me and said, I stage four cancer, I said, that's right. And I talked to her about Graves disease and I said, you know, they're all really autoimmune diseases. And we all have something inside of us. And I said, I look at it as the same. But I said, I thought I had it, but I didn't. But it was still tough. And it still could have killed me if I hadn't done it. But looking back on it, I, I think, well, you do everything for a reason. But the one thing I hadn't planned on, and I thought I'm going to get through the season, I'm going to get through the season. We had a Christmas episode. It was a, where I came out and I was... I I came out of the elevator and it was supposed to be quirky all, you know, up. And I had this whole one of quirky monologues and it was so, it was like, I rehearsed it. We'd re we pre-shot it and stuff. And then we were getting ready to go out for our curtain call. And I got on the elevator, we would get on the elevators and I started to feel like my heart was going to jump out of my chest. And I started to feel like, I was, I couldn't breathe and I I couldn't get my breath. And I thought, what is happening to me? And, and then I, I never would ever do this, but I, I literally knocked on the elevator. I was like, push, I pushed it back and I said, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. It was such a dramatic moment. And I was like, I, I so don't like ever do this, but I, I, I just thought I can't. And so they brought me back into the makeup room, which was right behind the elevator. They sat me down. Candace came in and she said, what's wrong? She held my hand. She got down on her knees. Diane came behind me 
And I was going, I don't know, I can't breathe. And I really, I don't, I can't, I can't breathe. And I don't know what's wrong with me. And I I just thought, uh, okay, what do I do? And I really didn't know what was going to happen, but they called in the paramedics and they came in and they, I remember Ned Davis was our, our first AD and he brought me a brown paper bag and said, breathe into this bag. I think you're having an anxiety attack. And, uh, I said, okay, and they took my pulse, and my resting heart rate was, resting was 100 beats a minute. Whew. And uh, it's, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, then, and then they said, okay, you're just going to calm down, and they gave me, a, well, the one thing that finally calmed me down was, Candace was like, Faithy, now you don't not go to the doctor anymore, you have to go. And the thing that actually really calmed me down was Diane came in and she said, now, Faith, I want you to know this. If we don't do the show tonight, it is no big deal. And I said, no, 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 we have to do the show. And she said, no, we don't. We're in television. We have an insurance policy for for situations just like this. We will not make you work under these conditions. And I was like, what? And she said, I said, well, when will you do the show again? And she said, next week. Hmm. And I said, really? And she said, yes, really. And I said, but all these, she was don't even, and it was like, it was like, finally, everything just calmed down. And I was able to do the show after that. And it, and it worked, but it was, you know, when you, when those things happen and, and you get to hear that some, and she said all the right things, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that was a good, that was a good mama. That was a good camp counselor, you know, and she might not even remember doing this, but you know, we forget because I, I forge forward and I move on. But when I was watching these older episodes, it reminded me of those times like that, you know, mm-hmm. I was so relieved to find out it was Graves' disease and I could do something about it, you know? And, you know, but I identify with people who have health issues for sure. Yeah, this is, um, I, uh, about five years ago, I was diagnosed with uh, Crohn's. So I also have an autoimmune disease. And so a lot of the things that you're saying um, mm. sound very familiar. Uh, and it's amazing how resilient mm. we are as humans but also how you can just ig- ignore certain things because you just want to keep going forward. And I, I did a lot of the same things. Uh, things that I look back on, I go, I can't believe I didn't go to the hospital. I can't believe that I didn't call a 911 on certain things, that I just kept saying, nope, this will be fine. People would tell me to go to the doctor. And I was like, no, I'm just going to change my diet. It'll be fine. And it's just, you know, you want you want to make yourself feel like it's going to be okay. And it's amazing how it takes so long for you to um, uh, realize reality, I guess. Yeah, it's, it, it makes you also appreciate when you are feeling good. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And also life, yes. you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, when, when you think, oh, if I, cause I, I was very, I, I hate to say very close to dying, but um, no, I know we found out just in time. Yeah. Like it was like just, the day of my surgery, I woke up and I was like, something is very wrong. And I knew I had to have it that day, even though I was already supposed to have it. But yeah. Right. I mean, 
look, I'm glad you're here. I've known people with Crohn's and I know that it's, it's not, it's horrible. <laughs> it can be yeah, just, it's, you know, it's debilitating. It can be debilitating. Um, yeah, completely. I'm very lucky though. I have really good doctors and, um, I'm about, they say 80% better. That's excellent. Mm -hmm. So I'm in a really good place. Right I now. love that. Yeah. I love to hear that. Yes. Yeah. I have a friend who's three time cancer survivor. Oh, wow. Three times. And she's, they just recently, she, she had a recurrence again and they put her on an experimental drug and she's in remission. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Great. She didn't even have to do chemo. Wow. It's so interesting to me. These stories, uh, as you were talking, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm just watching Lauren out of the corner of my eye while you were talking about disease. I was like, oh, my heart for you. Um, the reason that I, I love these, I have a friend who has, who was a make-a-wish kid with Crohn's and she's just, a lot of her life choices are based around insurance and what doctor she can go to and so on and how much it changes Same, the arc yeah. of your life. But one of the reasons I love these interviews that we have with those of you that we've you know known through our screens for so long or whose words we've heard for so long is the universality that comes from hearing someone's individual experience that speaking from a personal experience, I, I could hear you talking about your, I was a very sick child. I had, I was basically born with lungs that did not want to breathe. Um, and yeah, I think my mom, I'm sure my mother will text me after she hears this with the correction, but it was something like pneumonia two or three times before I was two. And my Ugh. poor mother, I just can't even imagine watching a baby go through that. But it's made me incredibly obstinate about what I can do physically. Uh, because anytime I was told many times I can't uh, do endurance. And so I was like, well, fine, now I'm going to run a 10k. Like, I'm going to do these things. But there's something about this when you're born with adversity, it makes you just not want to hear you can't do something. Mm -hmm. And, and then hearing you talk about getting Graves disease and having people like Lauren who have discovered these things that they have to learn to live with hearing somebody that we've looked up to talk about that experience it just humanizes the whole process and it makes you feel less alone yeah absolutely well that's why it's like you know I have a I have a thing on Instagram like I when I hear about somebody having something that might be a celebrity I immediately am attached to them it's the they immediately I may not have ever known them but they're like my brethren all of a sudden, because <laughs> it's like, it's like Selma Blair right now. I am just, I feel like I'm, I know what she, I absolutely, I mean, it's like, it, it could be me. I just like, that could be me. Yep. That mm -hmm. could be me. I don't go from to a place of, Oh, I hope I know. Oh yeah. That, that could be, I, I just bring it. I just want to embrace, embrace them because it's not even that you're just going through something. It's that you're a public person and you're going through something and then you don't want it to be about you being public, but you're public. Mm -hmm. So you've got to, and so because you're public, you, and I see her doing it. She's embracing everybody that's going through what she, or has been through and saying, look, I'm, I get to have the best of care because, you know, of the people that I'm connected to and where I am, a lot of people aren't that fortunate you know, and I watching it happen in front of me. And so it just, it draws me closer to them. It's like Shannon Doherty. I knew her mother because her mother worked at the place where I used to get facials when I, when I was on Murphy Brown, because my, my face used to break out like crazy. Cause we used to use this heavy, heavy pan makeup. Mm -hmm. oh. I was 23. Think about skin at 23. You know, it's just, it's just a hot mess. I mean, I had 
you know, lots of very active oil glands and everything. So it was not a choice or a, uh, what do you call it? A pampering situation for me. I literally had to be in there getting my pores cleaned out on Saturday mornings, no matter what. Well, anyway, Shannon Doherty mother was there and she kind of ran the whole place. And I'll never forget her telling me, you know, my daughter's an actress. I was like, oh, well, that's so nice. Well, she was much younger than me. And I was like, well, that's so nice, you know. And then she went on to do Beverly Hills 90210 and she became, you know, a pop phenomenon and everything. But now she's got another recurrence of cancer and it's like, there she is. And I just go right on and, I, and it's like, she's my friend's daughter and I'm going to give her my support and my love, you know. Yeah, she's a person. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. I, it's, I think it's so important because exactly what you're saying. I mean, when when I read that you had had an autoimmune disease, it, it, it made me feel better. It made me go, oh, well, she has a wonderful career. And, and the fact that you had it while you were on Murphy Brown, that you, you could be on a weekly television show. You know, I didn't really know what my future was going to be. Uh, and we've talked about hope a lot on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, and having some bit of hope to uh, to see, oh, I have a future because this person has a future or this person is going through what I'm going through. It, it really doesn't mean a lot. It does. It's like my sister is with like weight and things like that. And she's always been a shining example to women who have struggled with their weight. And I'm like, it's, it's really something that, you know, embrace who you are with all your imperfections. And you will find that other women will do the same and you will, you will find that. And, and everybody, I don't know what it, it may not be exactly alike. Some women deal with their husbands and issues with their husbands in their, in their lives. And they find themselves alone at an age where you don't want to be alone. I have a girlfriend right now that ha- is doing that. And she's got a, you know, a daughter that's in college and stuff. And she and her husband had to part ways, but they stayed together on the, you know, because of their, you know, meaning like they agreed on what they wanted to do with their daughter. And I think that's another great story that's out there. And I just think it's, it's wonderful when women finally decide, you know what, you know, let's join together on what we're alike, you know, our likeness, likenesses. And we all, we all want to be these perfect shining examples with, you know, but sometimes I think you're, issues or your things that you're not really the proudest of, or you might be embarrassed of, or think that there's going to, those can actually be the things that really form who you are as a complete human being, you know, and, uh, it's where you find your, we all have passion, but compassion comes Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. trials and tribulations in your life, you know, but yeah. I agree. I do think Corky was like, is like that too. Yeah. I think actually Corky really felt sorry for Murphy a lot. (laughs) Oh yes. Oh, she did. She did. She, and she was there to help. Yeah. She was, she was, she felt sorry, but she was there to help her. She tried. She tried to help so hard. (laughs) I would love, I would love to, cause we, I know we've been going back and forth, but we always like to talk about someone's origin stories, which you, you alluded to, but I'd love to know how you went from modeling to officially to acting. Well, um, I started in, my mother didn't ever, she was an elementary school teacher, so she would never let me just go to New York for no, you know, with no 
education sort of thing in Milan. So she found this place called Wiest Baron, and I think they're still there. And uh, they sort of give you a, it was a summer course because I was going to go for the summer. And at the end of the summer, I went two weeks after I graduated high school. I was 17 and my parents went up there with me. They stayed with me for two weeks. I was at Hotel Tudor on 42nd and 2nd. Uh, it was a, you know, they were letting models come in. And at the time it was, uh, you know, I'd had four agencies that expressed interest in me, Wilhelmina, Elite, Zoli, and Ford didn't, it wasn't Ford. It was one other one. Anyway, I think Elite is the only one that's still there, but nevertheless, that's what I went to is deciding which modeling agency I was going to be with, be in. But of course I was only five, seven. That's not exactly the prime height for a model. So I had that working against me and everyone that I went into just literally looked at me and said, Oh, cause remember that conve- convention I told you about mm-hmm. or said, come back to New York. We'll sign you. You'll work. So I went there and I had all these, uh, these agency appointments signed up. They had me come in I put my book down, which was not extensive. I think I got some pictures made at the Alexandria Daily Town Talk, as well as uh, some pictures that my mom had done. But anyway, uh, they all of them said, you'll never work. Go back home. They made a mistake by telling you to come here. You're five seven. You're too short. You're too this. You're not this enough. You're too commercial. You're that. And I went, you know, it was okay, I was ready to go back home. And my mom said, not so fast because she had enrolled me in these, this Wies Baron. And it was commercial acting, uh, soap opera. Uh, they taught you how to get a resume, a picture, and it might've been something else, but it was all about skills, you know, really being able to go out there and get a job as, as an actor. And I thought, well, that was my side thing. I was going to go to make money as a model, remember, and then do a real job. And I was going to be a fashion designer merchandising. And I was like, but I just did that in high school. I wasn't supposed to do this for a career. You know, uh, I wanted to make money. I wanted to be in the real world because I had worked in the department store, honey. And I knew (laughs) that I was going to be one of those women who were stressed nice and would help women, uh, get their wardrobes together and things like that. I sort of had it all planned out or I was going to design my clothes, design clothes for women. Nevertheless, I went into this because I committed to it. My mom found me a church, Metro Baptist church, because I was raised Baptist and it was on the Upper West Side. (laughs) She was not going to leave New York (laughs) until I had a church. (laughs) And, uh, And so I did that and I loved my classes because I got to meet people and, and they taught, they, they did help me get, you know, pictures and resumes together. And, uh, my cast, my teacher for my soap opera class was Anna Maria Costora. She was the head, she was the assistant casting director at one life to live. And Mary Jo Slater was the casting director, Christian Slater's mom. She was a big casting director. Actually, when I finished my class, they don't ever, they don't ever get people out of class. She waited till I graduated, said, there's a part that you might be right for on One Life to Live. And I think you should come in and read for it. And I was like, really? And she was like, yes. And so I, I did. I came in and, and, and read for it. And it was one of those things where 
I think it was my lack of knowing too much, kind of like quirky, kept me from being nervous because I figured I wasn't going to do it anyway. So I wasn't exactly even nervous. I didn't know enough to be nervous. And uh, I went in and Mary Jo Slater was the casting director. And she said, I read it once and she said, okay, I need you to work on this accent. I was like, I'm sorry, what accent? She said, well, she's, she's from New England. It's a New England lockjaw accent. And mm -hmm. I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And she said, okay, let me find somebody that you can think of. And I said, okay. And she said, Miss Howell on Gilligan's Island. I said, oh, I, I, I watched Gilligan's Island every day. Sure, I can do that. So I just I was like, oh, darling. I was just there. I, was, I did it like that. I was just like, really? I just went into a whole thing. Except I wasn't that quite. This. I was, and I, I, I just transformed in about two seconds flat because... Again, I told you, I used to mimic people and uh, I got the job. And only my, except for my first day of work, I got, uh, what do you call it when you have, you're nervous and you get laryngitis? Oh. I could not, I woke up, nothing was coming out of my mouth. Speaking, gone. Oh no. And I go to work, I said, well, maybe I just have to have some tea. <laughs> it was just like drinking tea. It's just too early in the morning because, you know, your call time is like 5 a.m. for a soap mm -hmm. opera. And I was like, I'm just not awake yet. And I just kept thinking, no one, I haven't gone to rehearsal yet. You had to report to rehearsal hall. I, it'll be there by then. It just kept not showing up. So finally, I went in and, and they were waiting for me to speak. I wrote, a, it's like, I had to write on a piece of paper, my, my voice isn't working today <laughs> and they said oh my god so then all, all of a sudden people came swarming in okay and then they, they started making phone calls and the director was saying we have to recast because we can't do this we've got you know blah 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 we're shooting it today we'll get the second girl in line all this stuff was happening i finally was like and then i wrote down doctor i will pay and uh, I did, and they sent a doctor, and I told, he told him what's wrong. He said, I'm just going to give you a steroid shot, and we'll hope that it works. And it did. And I actually had enough voice to do it, but it was still a little bit craggly. But that was my first job. And that sort of gave me my spark to know. But I was, let's see, how old I was. Well, I was, let's see, that was the spring. I want to say the spring. But before that, I'd gotten into commercials. So my very, very, very first job was uh, an almost job. It wasn't really a job. It was uh, for a Maybelline ad campaign. And I had met the guy that I told you that was a restaurateur who was also an actor. He said, Johnny, Johnny V will call him. But Johnny said, you know, he came to visit me one day and all these girls in the hotel were talking about this Maybelline ad and they were all models and they were all beautiful. and and. And I was like, whatever. And so he was, he, he, I'd taken all my pictures and resumes. This is after I'd finished, we, you know, we sparing and everything. And I was doing it. And he was taking my pictures and resumes around and we were sh dropping them off at agencies. And they were all saying, just leave it in the thing and go, you know, whatever. All right. All right. Go ahead. You know, everything was just, you could just envision them. The minute you walk out the door, they were throwing it in the trash, you know? Uh, and then he, I told him about this audition. He's like, well, let's go. I know Ted, I know Nancy Fields at Ted, ba Ted Bates. Let's go there. And I said, what do you mean? Let's go there. 
because you have to understand, I didn't have a stitch of makeup on. I had this wild, I still have it. I have curly hair, wavy hair, and it was just like wild. And I had a bandana tap tied around my head with this wild curly hair. And then I had big, I probably had about three, I was, I had a bazooka bubble gum problem <laughs> that I used to chew on bubble gum. <laughs> and uh, I walked in, he said, let's go up and I kid you not, there were 200 of the most beautiful girls in New York at this audition. And I thought, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm just not supposed to be here. And we waited till every one of those girls had been seen. And I was the last person on the list. And Nancy Fields said, Faith Ford, who is this? And she's like, he's, Johnny came up and said, Nancy, he's like, Johnny, how you doing? He knew, knew her from when he was a child, he did commercials with her. He said, come on in. She said, come in here. So I went in and she said, can I had still had my gum in? I said, Oh, I'm so sorry. I had my Southern accent still. I'm so sorry. I was chewing bubble gum. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My mom would be so mad at me. She said, no, keep it in. And I said, what? She said, keep it in. She's, she just starts talking to me. She said, can you blow a bubble? I said, Oh, I can blow a bubble inside a bubble inside a bubble. What are you kidding me? And so I just started blowing these bubbles where, you know, you, you can one, two, and it was really a good one. I was like, I was spot on. The bubble gum was perfect. Three, four. I think I got up to about here and the whole thing exploded and got all over my face, my hair. I, I was in my hair. I was, I was like, I started laughing so hard and she finally said, keep it, keep it. We're going to keep it. Then she said, turn around and blow a kiss. Turn around and do this. Turn around and do that. Whatever I did, I finished. I walked out. I said, that is just, was just horrible. I'm just, mom would just be so embarrassed. Well, I got a call and uh, they said, well, my, it was an agent. One of the agents, I dropped my picture off that day and said, you know, hi, Faith. We're so happy to have you as a client. You got a call from Maybelline. They want to book you as their new ad campaign for da 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 And I said, really? What? Really? As it turned out, they can't they canned the campaign before we really got to do it, but that's how I got my first agent. You know. <laughs> it's like that's just where things happen. So I, I always look at that. I guess I'm meant to be doing this. And one of the packs I made to myself was I I did I I wasn't going to do it if it wasn't going to be a real job, you know, mm -hmm. to pay money because I couldn't afford, my parents couldn't afford to just support me there and I knew how hard it was to be able to live in New York. It was expensive or whatever. So, so I said, I knew that I had to start making money. Listen, you know, I came home for my birthday and they said, oh, well, they said, if you don't, if you haven't made any money by your birthday, which was September 14th, and I'd come there in June, they said, we're going to have to get you back home and put you in school. And by then I fell in love with New York and the whole thing. And that worked. I started getting commercials and that supported me for a while and then one life to live and then out to, you know, and then I think what got me out to LA fast forward was I'd been working and I ended up doing another world. I'd gone out to LA for pilot season. I ended up on auditioning for days of our lives. They flew me out to replace Kira Sedgwick in another world, you know? So I was actually the replacement of her replacement. And, uh, the great thing about that show was that, as you know, some of the best actors in our, you know, were always on soap operas. 
So when I came onto Another World, it was Joe Morton, Morgan Freeman. Uh, it was just it was crazy the the actors that were there. I didn't actually get to work with them all, but uh, I I got that that opportunity to work there for a year. Then they killed me off by accident. It was it was it was like I got fired, but not because they wanted to fire me. It was the most bizarre, full, hilarious thing. I was the youngest person on the show. And the following summer was coming up. I'd been working for a year and they wanted to bring on this young storyline, which also soap operas like to do in the summer because kids would be home from school. And so they hired Mm -hmm. all these young people on and they were in high school. But my character was not in high school. She was in college. Someone didn't get the memo. They didn't have Corby Siamis (laughs) there for the Bible. And... I told them, and but the great thing was I sat there, the producer called me to his office and they announced it. You know, you're working, you're on the job working. And we're, we finished my scene. They said, Mrs. Ford, Mr. Potter would like to see you in his office, please. And everybody was like, Ooh. you know, and we had the town killer in town. <laughs> he had killed off a few people. So I went mm-hmm. up and he told me, and I actually started laughing when he told me, and it was a nervous laugh. I laugh at the wrong time sometimes. And he, I said, he says, why are you laughing? I've just told you we're not going to have you on the show anymore. And I said, well, I guess I, it's, I'm just nervous. I, I mean, I just, I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh. And he goes, no, really? Why are you laughing? And I said, well, because I think I'm just sort of sad, but at the same time relieved. And he said, why are you relieved? I said, well, because I think I just went into my six-month pay cycle. Because that's how our contracts were. Mm -hmm. And he said, because I was going to get paid for, I got paid for six months for two episodes a week because they had entered my sixth month. And he didn't know that. (laughs) So they had hired all these other people on. So it gave me the opportunity to go out to LA. And that's Mm -hmm. how I ended up out in LA. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be dropping part two soon. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Murphy Brown Pod. Stay well. Bye. Bye.